0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when it comes to high-stakes endeavors, few are as fraught as brain surgery. One false move, and you can forever alter someone's life. That's why my guest has spent his life studying how to master fear and enhance performance and gain insights that can help anyone do likewise in every area of their life. His name is Dr. Mark McLaughlin, and he's a wrestling coach, a lecturer at West Point, and a practicing neurosurgeon, as well as the author of Cognitive Dominance, a brain surgeon's quest to outthink fear. Today on the show, Mark and I discuss how fear manifests itself in a range from mild discomfort to full-blown paralysis and how you can get a handle on it by developing cognitive dominance. Mark then unpacks what cognitive dominance is and how it involves being able to overcome our visceral reaction to unexpected events and respond to elements outside our control with poise and composure. We then talk about how to gain that kind of composure by breaking things down into objects. These are things that exist independently of us with features everyone can agree on and subjects, things that are specific to you and encompass the sphere within which you can personally act. Mark walks us through how the objective and subjective can form an X and Y axis and how you can map the things that happen to you into the four quadrants they form in order to figure out how to respond. We end our conversation with how to deal with the known unknowns in life by making a two column list of who you do and don't want to be and focusing on the former. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash cognitive dominance. All right, Dr. Mark McLaughlin, welcome to the show.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Brett.
0: So you are a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon, and you're also an author. You wrote a book called Cognitive Dominance. And in this book, you explore extreme fear and how to overcome it. So how did a neurosurgeon end up exploring the topic of extreme fear?
1: Well, I think we all have episodes in our life of extreme fear, and um, I guess each of us perceive it and experience it in a different way. For me, I think it came as I was a young neurosurgeon because I I care a lot about my patients, and that's something that's very hard to balance because in order to be a, a good doctor and a good surgeon you have to be objective and you can't lose your objectivity certainly when you're in the operating room and you're in dangerous situations and so it's a very hard thing to balance i think you know obviously caring a lot makes a great doctor but it can also get in the way of you making important decisions and you know dealing with emergency situations so for me that's that's kind of where it started i kept struggling with How can I really, really care about this person and yet dispassionately make the decisions that I need to make as things unfold, and and, and particularly when things might potentially go wrong? And That's really when I started thinking a lot about fear and how I could put it in its appropriate place because you need a certain amount of it to perform, but too much is paralyzing and too little doesn't get you to rise to the occasion. Well, you yeah, you call this
0: paralyzing like thinking about being freaked out. You call it the fear of freak out. And you kind of break down what are the elements of the fear of freak out? What for you what what are those elements when you you know you're about to do a surgery that's a real big deal. For you it was doing surgery on kids. That's the thing that kind of in, sort of triggered it. So what are those elements of the fear of freak out?
1: So if you are experiencing or you're practicing avoidance behaviors, escapism behaviors, if you're engaging in poor coping strategies, if you're reverting to your lesser self, then you are in the fear freak out. That's when, you know, it's it's a some form of the fight or flight response. So it's important for you to be able to identify that in your own, in anyone's behaviors. For me, it was, why do I keep trying to not think about this problem or put it off or, you know, distract myself from thinking about the problem that's really bothering me because, once I start really putting my efforts towards what's bothering me, and I think it through, my anxiety level goes down. So that's the that's the thing you need to, to focus on before you get to the fear freakout. The fear freakout is obviously the extreme case when you literally you just decompensate. You know, instead of you know making the phone call to your sick brother who just got a bad diagnosis you avoid it. You do something else. You don't do what needs to get done. So that's, that's the fear freak out experience that we we all have in certain ways for me, you know, and one of my surgeries that I talk about in the book was, uh, was a young girl that had profuse bleeding. And my initial reaction was to move and pull the endoscope away from the bleeding which is the exact worst thing you could do. You need to keep the endoscope focused on the bleeding so that the blood can come out through the endoscope tube and not press on the brain. So it's, it's really identifying your, your fight or flight response and then putting a governor on it and really thinking it through.
0: In this governor, you call, it the, you call it cognitive dominance. When did you first hear about this idea of cognitive dominance? And we'll get into it a little bit more in our conversation, but big picture, what are the elements of cognitive dominance?
1: Yeah, I first heard cognitive dominance when I was giving some talks up at West Point for a class in human performance at the Center for Enhanced Performance, which is headed up by Dr. Nate Zinser. And I was asked to speak to the cadets, and I go there annually, and we talk about you know, what are the key performance indicators that help us in performing at our best and what impedes our performance. And as I was telling some of my stories, one of the cadets stood up and said, you know, that sounds a lot like cognitive dominance. I had never heard the term before. And he defined it for me. And he said, it's enhanced situational awareness that facilitates rapid and accurate decision making under stressful conditions with limited decision-making time. And to them, it was a military term, and it's defined as such. And but I thought to myself, "Wow, that's more than just a military thinking. That's medicine, and it's also like being a parent and being a husband and living a life and making decisions when you have limited amounts of time, and they're important decisions, and you need to chart your course in life." So I thought, "Wow, that's I need to know more about this." how do I get this cognitive dominance thing? And and you know what keeps me from being cognitively dominant? And that's when I sort of began my search. I had been studying human performance for years, but this really crystallized my thoughts and it helped me start shaping the narrative of my book.
0: And a big part of gaining cognitive dominance is understanding fear and our response to fear. And you spend a lot of time in the book going through this and you get into details with it, but like big picture, like what, what is fear? Like when you ask people, how do you define fear? What sorts of answers do you get? And then how do you define it?
1: Let me just take a step back and, you know, a big picture on cognitive dominance first, before we go to fear. And that is because it, it it's intimately related and really cognitive dominance boiled down is it's poise. It, it's keeping your cool it's what Rudyard Kipling wrote in the poem if you know meeting triumph and disaster and treating those two imposters just the same so it's it's on the big picture it's really training your mind and your body to react in the way that it was best trained to react over time to the elements you know outside of our control. So that leads me more into the fear side of things. So, fear is what we experience when something unexpected comes our way. You know, we're all living in the world, we're doing our things, we're trying to achieve the goals that we, that we have set out to, to achieve. And we're, we're sort of, we have like sort of a map of where we want to go. And we begin to experience fear when something doesn't go right on our path from where we are to where we think we should be. And that's when this this unexpected event comes in and we begin to experience fear. And it can be identified as anything from mild anxiety or discomfort or a little uneasiness to you know full-blown mortification or paralysis of what to do, depending on the level of the unexpected event. And so fear comes in a variety of shades, but it's all really the same mechanism. And it's the same apparatus in your brain that's receiving it.
0: Well, you make one big distinction. There's internally dominant fear and externally dominant fear. What's the difference between the two?
1: Internally dominant fear are the demons that we we conjure up in our own mind. You know, I love the story about, you know, caveman walks into cave and draws a picture of a tiger and looks at the picture and scares himself and runs out of the cave, you know? And it's one of those... Wow, the guy's a fool, isn't he? But isn't that what we all do in our minds every day when we start thinking up terrible things that might happen or bad events that, you know, could potentially occur? So that's like an internally dominant fear state that we have to be careful of. And then externally dominant fear states are, you know, are real threats to us, whether that's a, a threat to our job, you know, when a new person comes in and maybe it's got, been given the, the, the title that you have, and now you're looking at a potential, you know, competitor. It's an externally, you know, physical threat that you might have when you're walking down the street and you notice that somebody's following you. So that's important to dis- distinguish these types of threats because they they, trigger different strengths of fear in our brain.
0: And then related to this you know, idea of externally and internally dominated fear is you, you make the case that in order to figure out what it is you're dealing with, what's this unexpected thing you're dealing with, is to make a distinction between object and subject. Uh, so this is where you get philosophical. And you, I think you majored in philosophy uh, before did. you became a neurosurgeon. So why, why is the distinction between object and subject important in trying to figure out, suss out our fear?
1: So I learned this from Jordan Peterson, who you know I, I was very influenced by his book Maps of Meaning, and also his, his subsequent books. And and one of the things I learned from his his teachings is that you know, he talks about there being two ways to look at the world: look at the world as a place of objects, and look at the world as a place to act. And when we live in a place to act that's something that's laid out in stories we are encoded to devour and to digest stories at all times in our life even when we were little kids all the way till now that's how we remember things is through stories and stories are sort of a they're like a mini map of the world and they teach us you know ways to act in this world and so as i began to to try to Analyze and break down fear into its molecules, into its really molecular components. I thought that's the first thing we need to split fear into. What's the objective part of it? And what's the subjective part of it? So, the objective part is, you know, what are the specific identifiable features that everyone can agree on? Whether that's, you know, there's, you know, a tiger that's gotten loose at the zoo, that's a physical objective threat that everyone is in danger for as opposed to a subjective threat which is let's say you know somebody broke out a peanut butter sandwich in the cafeteria and you happen to be uh, have a peanut allergy okay that's something that's that's specific for you that's something that is related to you peanut butter is a, is something that's dangerous to you but it's not dangerous to other people so once we understand what's an objective threat and what's a, a subjective threat, we can begin to sort of start thinking about how to act when we're faced with something that induces fear. And
0: you face this all the time with your work as a neurosurgeon. You you actually walk through, there's moments where you you experience fear and you kind of do this quickly in your head. It's like, okay what's the story that I'm telling myself? Like, what do I think is happening? That's that subjective part. But then you have to, you actually start talking to people around you and say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you are you all seeing this? You're trying to figure out, is, is this thing real that's happening or is this just a part of, am I just making this up in my head?
1: That's exactly right. And that's part of the IRISE concept that I talk about in the book. So the IRISE concept is a, a way to bring a higher resolution to an unexpected event. And it's not something not something I use for everything, but it's something, it's one technique that I use. And what it is, is it's just a, an acronym for I being identify, really see what you're seeing and define its characteristics. And then it rejects your initial. So the second letter is R, reject your initial impulse, which is usually some type of self-preservation impulse. That's your... What I talk about in the book is brain 1.0, your, your fear guardian, your fear detector. And then the third letter is inventory. So it's I-R-I, inventory, which is basically look around, talk to people. Has anybody else experienced this? Get as many perspectives as possible because that's going to help you solve the problem. And then stabilize, which is the, the S in I-RISE, and that's act you know try and buy some time act with the lowest possible cost in medicine we say that first do no harm so that means like think about it stabilize buy some time if you can think about it overnight if it's possible if it's not an emergency and then lastly reevaluate and and really try to think laterally try and come up with alternative solutions to the problem so that's you know one technique that that I use to kind of deal with an unexpected event well, going back,
0: you mentioned this this idea of brain 1.0, brain 2.0. I want to explore this idea of fear more. It help because I think it was really useful for me to, because it helps you, sort of a metacognition. It helps you understand what's going on in your brain so you can start manipulating what you're thinking about. And you talk about... How what goes on in our brain when we when we experience fear? And you make this very simplified version of what's going on. And you, I guess it's first you say there's a there's a brain 1.0 and there's a brain 2.0 that this unexpected event gets filtered through. So walk us through that process. So we we're going through life and we encounter this unexpected event. What's going on? How do we react to that in our brain?
1: Sure. So. I took a page out of Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think that's a, a fascinating book. And, uh, you know, he talks about how we make quick decisions with uh, one system, system 1.0, and then we, we make more iterative, careful, and deliberate decisions with a system 2.0. And I, I think that's a really great model to think about how fear lands in our brain as well brain 1.0 is the more primitive part of our brain the amygdala hippocampal area the medial temporal region of your brain which has been ingrained to you know recognize snakes and to recognize danger and you know height and being near the edge of a cliff like you know in, even infants have a fear of heights so that's the the ingrained, encoded system that's helped us survive for thousands and thousands of years. And it works great for imminent bodily threats, external forces that can harm us, but it doesn't function well in the operating room. It doesn't function well in the boardroom or when you're you know, in a family crisis. So the brain 2.0 is the frontal lobes, the prefrontal lobes, the, the lobes of your brain that are thinking about future actions and consequences of your actions and how can this fit in a bigger picture. So one layer of thinking about this is that there's this brain 1.0, which is the guardian that's going to warn you of bodily threats, but you need to watch out because it can overly turn on your reaction to something that's going to be detrimental and you need brain 2.0 to think through that and be more iterative and deliberate. And then the other way to think about it also, and I talk about this in the book is, you know, we have two hemispheres and there's a reason for that. You know, generally the left hemisphere is more logical and language and mathematical based and the right hemisphere is more story based it's more big picture it can it, it picks up facial expressions better it can understand us the the physicality of an event that your left brain doesn't pick up and we need to sort of toggle between those two hemispheres as well take in the immediate right hemispheric big picture but also utilize your left hemisphere to be logical and that's really what leads me into graphing And unexpected events. So what I talk about is, you know, we can take an unexpected event and we can literally break it down into its components on an X and a Y axis. And that's, that's a really helpful, it's been a really helpful method for me to really dissect and come up with solutions to complex problems. So basically you draw an X and a y axis and the X axis is kind of like your left brain. It's also the objective part of your brain. So that's the, you know, the, the how we deal with the world as a place of objects, the X axis and the Y axis. That's more your right brain. That's more of how to act in the world. So that's the, the subjective component of your world. And if you can think about the world and these unexpected events in those two axes, you can literally plot an event out and it can put you into a quadrant, which which will help you know where you're at and how you need to proceed.
0: Okay. I want to get into these quadrants, uh, but before I just want to recap. So brain 1.0 is that initial response that we have to an unexpected event. And usually that's that's the fight or flight response. Correct. And then brain 2.0 needs to come in and over, kind of step in and say, well, do you really need to do what you what that initial response you want to do? So I guess going back to that example you talked about, you had that surgery on that, that girl, she had a lot of bleeding in her brain. That you had a one point, brain 1.0 response was, I got to pull this thing out because I got to protect myself. I, I got to, I want this to stop. Brain 2.0, I guess it was actually a mentor said, no, don't do that because that's going to make things even worse.
1: I didn't have my brain 2.0 at that point in my training. <laughs> that's what that's what mentors and, and teachers help us with. And that's exactly right. He said, don't move an inch, Mark. Stay exactly where you are because as long as that blood is coming through this endoscope and out her head, nothing is going to be damaged. And all we need to do is keep transfusing her. If you take that Scope out of her head, the blood's going to build up and press on her brain stem, and she's going to die very quickly.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day, wear a custom made to measure suit. a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made to measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code manliness to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com promo code manliness. And now back to the show. And I guess one challenge of modern life is our brain 1.0 responds to, you know, we'll call them subjective or internally dominant fears the same way as it would to externally dominant fears. So it's like our brain responds to the fear of, you know, social status defeat because someone didn't, I don't know, like something on Instagram the same way it would respond to seeing a snake. Is that, would that be correct?
1: I'm really glad you mentioned that cuz this is a this is a really important and and timely you know feature to think about and that's exactly correct and and that's really where you know we all are subject to that and no matter how many times I try to adopt the stoic philosophy of just focusing on myself my character and my virtue you know, a nasty email comes across, or a patient complaint comes in, and and I'm I'm hurt by it, or I'm, I'm upset by it, and I have to, you know, reach back into my mind and 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 talk talking myself out of that, and say, listen, you know what? Did you do your best? Yes, I did my best. Did everything work out the way it was supposed to? No. Sometimes you can do everything right, and something still go wrong, and that's the job you chose. Now own it. And similarly, I think that, as you say, this social rejection with, you know, not getting likes on your social media or being ghosted or all the terrible things that are happening on social media is we need to, you know, train brain 2.0 to become stronger, to provide the input to suppress that brain 1.0. Oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Oh my gosh, none of my patients like me. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, I'm a social outcast. So it's it's it, the first step is recognizing it not knowing about that inner critic that's going to come out and and then figuring out a way to gradually train you can you can literally rewire your brain by thinking different thoughts by reading different philosophies i'm a big fan of the stoic philosophy and you know i I'm, I'm a ryan holiday fan i read the daily stoic every day and i think it's a it's a great way to train your mind to be not reactive, to be more thoughtful, to be more focused on what you can control, what's within your sphere of control. So I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Okay, so brain 1.0 feels this fear. Brain 2.0 needs to come in and say, okay, wait a minute. That initial response you have, probably not the right one. And so the next phase that you recommend doing is again, putting, you know, sort of mapping this experience, this unexpected event in one of these four quadrants that we've just talked about, this x y axis. So, what are these uh, four quadrants? I mean, what are the what are their characteristics? And uh, yeah, walk us through that.
1: Sure. So, if you draw the x axis and call that objective, and draw the y axis and call that subjective, you can let's let's take an event. Let's say I'm in the operating room. Uh, like I was the other day and everything's clicking, you know, it's uh, just, you know, timing has been good. The anatomy looks really clear. I have a super great pathway to where I need to go. Everything that I reviewed on the MRI scan is exactly what I'm seeing. I'm able to move the blood vessel away from the the nerve that's causing the the pain. And I know that that motion is going to relieve this patient's pain and everything just clicks perfectly and we close and i'm just in you know on a runner's high basically and we all know that quadrant that's that's the flow quadrant that's when things objectively are going well that means everything that you planned is happening is happening in a logical fashion and subjectively i'm fulfilling my life mission to be The best doctor I can be. So that's a positive on the objective and a positive on the subjective. That puts me in the upper right hand quadrant, which I call flow. And we've all experienced it in many different ways. And that's when, you know, the world is in sync and it, it just feels wonderful. Then sometimes we have something that's objectively positive that happens in our lives, but subjectively it turns out to be something negative like you get a job promotion and so you got you know a raise and you've got more status but then you find out your boss is toxic and it's going to be a miserable uh, experience In this new position. So that's when something objectively is positive, right? You got a raise, you have a higher status, but subjectively, you know, having a peaceful day at work and achieving what you set your life goal to be doing at work is going to be impeded by this toxic boss. That's subjectively negative. So that's going to put you in the lower right hand quadrant, the quadrant which I call the calm before the storm. That means you're going along and you're doing what you're doing, but you know something bad is probably going to happen or you're going to need to change to get out of that uncomfortable state. Then sometimes we deal with something that's an unexpected event that's not only objectively negative but it's also subjectively negative. So that's terrible experiences that we have. Let's uh that's when a young patient that I operated on passes away or I see a trauma that comes to the hospital and I do everything I can to save them and they they die. I've got to go out and I've got to go talk to this family and tell them what just happened. It's, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible experience for the family. It's a sad experience for me and it's unpleasant in, in every way, shape or form. It's a, it's going to hurt yet. You know, I know that that's something that I have to do and I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the very best job I can in telling them what happened and how it happened and knowing that that conversation I have with that family is going to be something that they remember for the rest of their lives. So it's got to be done perfectly. And there's sometimes there's no way out of the all all is lost quadrant. That's the lower left-hand quadrant. But usually over time, you can climb your way out of it. And that will lead you to the upper left-hand quadrant, which is the Birthing a new skill set quadrant or the resiliency quadrant. And that's where something, an unexpected event occurs in our lives that's negative, yet subjectively, it turns out to be something positive. Like you lose your job, but then you get a chance to write the book you always wanted to write. Uh, something like uh, J.K. Rowling had an opportunity to do when she was unemployed and trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life, she began writing uh, Harry Potter. So, these are things that we all experience as well and we say, yeah, that that was not fun, but it turned out to be the best experience I ever had in my life. And those are the four quadrants and what I talk about in the book is that if you have this unexpected event and you have this uneasiness and you're experiencing fear, if you can map it out to whatever quadrant you're in, then you can figure out what you need to do next. And the moment you figure out what you need to do next, your anxiety goes down, your fear goes down and you begin performing better. Well, okay, so let's, are
0: there different like responses that you should take, general responses you take depending on what quadrant you're in? I guess if you're in that flow quadrant, it's just like, man, just go with the flow. Like, don't, don't disrupt that, just go with it. But let's say you're in that bottom right quadrant, I guess it's objectively good, subjectively not good. Like, what should be your, your response be in that situation?
1: Exactly. When you're in flow, don't ask any questions. You know, don't, don't, don't try and break that down. Just go with it and enjoy it. And what I say about both of the quadrants in the lower half and the, the negative Y is that. Sometimes you have to adjust and endure it for a period of time and you have to wait it out. But usually the first step that you can do is to what I say is climb the Y-axis. Because if you're moving on your map from where you are to where you should be, and for me, that's being a better doctor, being a more compassionate doctor, being the best surgeon I can be. That's the thing I need to do next. That's the smallest little step that I can do to move up that y-axis is what's going to bring me out of the negativity zone. So, like I said, in the all is lost, that's going to be, okay, this is a terrible situation. There's nothing that good that can come of this. Okay, I'm going to be the very best, most compassionate, most patient physician that delivers devastating news to a family. And that's something I can do really well. And that's climbing up the Y-axis. In the case of a toxic boss, it might be, all right, I'm not going to burn the ships right now, but I better get my CV in order. And I better start putting some feelers out to have some options because this is not going to be a good long-term solution for me. The second you start making that movement up the Y-axis, you're going to feel better and it's going to, Be it's sort of a a, sort of like a a positive feedback loop. You're going to start moving more and more back up into the birthing a new skill set and resilience quadrant and into the flow. And you know, you can't always live in flow, life would be boring, it would be uh, you'd be unhappy. It's important that we experience all of these quadrants, it's part of the hero's journey. And that's how we get to a new level. And we keep getting better and better. It's, it's, a lot of times, it's, it's this clockwise fashion. We move from flow to calm before the storm to all is lost to birthing a new skill set. Sometimes it's a, it's a lateral jump from one to another. But that's, that's the process of, of life and, and getting better.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting how you mapped on the hero's quest, you know, through these different quadrants. I thought that was uh, a really incisive insight.
1: Yeah, recognizing that is is really important. So, you know, I tell the the book centers around, and you know this, the centers around a story about a young boy, Anthony, who I operated on when he was eight years old. And although the surgery went perfectly, Anthony um, suffered many, many complications and and side effects of his surgery and his treatments and of his disease. And you know, even though initially I was in flow, his surgery went perfectly. I'm so I was so happy about it, I was thrilled. I'm like, man, I love being a neurosurgeon. Then he started not doing well, and I started, you know, wondering why is he having this complication and that complication. And I was sort of in the calm before the storm. I was kind of like, "Wow, I'm here. I am a young neurosurgeon. I trained my whole life for this—eight years in residency, four years in medical school—and I didn't expect to feel like this. I feel bad. I feel like, gosh, maybe I could have done something more for him. Maybe I could have." You know, did a better operation or picked up his complications earlier. And I didn't, I don't want to feel like this. This is uncomfortable. And then I fell from the calm before the storm all the way to the all is lost quadrant. I basically said, you know what? You can't handle operating on kids. You know, this is too much for you. And something you did, maybe you didn't do as good of an operation as you could have. And that's why Anthony is not doing well. And And I lived in that all is lost quadrant for a long time, for 15 years. I I had told myself a story that Anthony was not doing well and it was my fault in some way, shape or form. And it wasn't until I started writing this book and I reconnected with Anthony and found out that he was alive and still doing well and with his family that I realized, oh my gosh, like. It was a blessing to take care of Anthony, even though you ran away from it and you stopped doing pediatric neurosurgery and you kind of put him in a in a place in your life that said that was a failure. You didn't fail. You actually helped him and kept him part of his family and kept his family intact. And so I, you know, after 16 years, I went, I r- rose out of the all is lost and moved into the birthing into a new skill set. And then it ultimately just flipped me into realizing Wow, what a blessing I have to be a neurosurgeon and, and to have taken care of Anthony. And just that revelation and, and talking to my editor who said, you know, Mark, you're holding yourself to an impossible standard. And I had never really thought of it that way. It kicked me back into flow, kicked me into like, oh my gosh, this is such a great privilege. I love what I'm doing and I get to care for people. What a special, what a special job I have
0: and i imagine that this is it's hard to do like label what's going on when you're in the moment of feeling uncertainty or uncertain uh, so how do you how do you train your you know brain 2.0 to override brain 1.0 and be like hey, let's 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 map this thing out how do you do that
1: well it's, it comes with experience and and failure and learning from your failure it, so it takes time you know, we're ingrained to react and, and cultivating brain 2.0 is a, is a, that's a, that's an important process that it doesn't, you're not born with that. You're born with brain 1.0. You're not born with brain 2.0. You, you're given the apparatus to use it, but you have to train it and create a neural network of cognitive dominance. And you do that by thinking about it. And so if I still have events, not exactly like my uh, my experience with Anthony, but I have still have events that are like that now, and I'm much more resilient to the event because I say to myself, hey, this is the job you chose. You're going to do some things, and sometimes, even though you do everything right, something terrible is going to happen. It's a risky business. You took an oath, follow that oath and do the very best you can every day and that's all you can do. And so um I think it's it's certainly studying studying the West Point cadets and the military philosophy, reading stoic literature, poetry. I always have tell the cadets that poetry is the world's first performance enhancement literature. So by reading poetry poems like if and invictus, you know, do not go gentle into the night, those those poems are, they're primal words that land deep in your brain and can help you in difficult times. So it's something you train, you train for, just like going to the weight room and getting stronger before you uh, go to wrestling practice or whatever sport you play. You have to train your, your brain to do that with, uh, with reading. And you know, I would hope that cognitive dominance is a little bit of a a, a handbook for people. Uh, it's it's certainly just scratches the surface about the concept, but I think it, it's uh, it, I'm very proud of it, and I think it's the first step to to understanding the the capacity that we all have, which is really unlimited. It's unlimited if we can really tame these demons and 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 cope with fear in the right way.
0: One thing you talk, we've been talking about unknown events that pop up in our life but then you also talk about at the very end sometimes we have in our life these known unknowns and the big one that hit home close to you you experience this is death and this happens to everybody we all know we're going to die everyone will but we don't really know like I think who is it someone Henry Beecher Stowe I think he called it the the great mystery this is the great mystery how do you manage those known unknowns
1: I think you focus on your definition of who you are, and I think that's an important thing everybody needs to do in their life: is literally put down on a piece of paper who you are. What are the words that describe who you are? Integrity, partnership, selfless, generous. What are, What are What do you stand for? And then put that on maybe on the left side of the column. And then on the right side, put down the things that you've been in the past that maybe are part of you, but you don't want them to be. They're parts of you that you want to have less of. Maybe that's being selfish. Maybe that's being... I would say, um, break it into zero-sum gain. In other words, being jealous, th- seeing somebody else's success and feeling like, oh, wow, you know that, that should be my success. And then I put in my left column, I always put non-zero-sum gain. That means basically anybody that does something doesn't take away from my poss- potential success, they just inspire me to my success. So by, by writing those sorts of things down, what you stand for, I, I think that the way you focus on dealing with something like death or, or death of a loved one, which is what I, how I realized this when my father was passing away was, how am I going to be during this event? And I just said, I got I to be a doctor. I got a son, a brother, uh, a husband. I got to do it all. And I got to do it the very best I can. And I think when I, my dad was my dad was you know um, close to the end, I had to administer the morphine for him, and that was the the hardest thing I could ever do because he was a he was an intellect and a polymath, and I knew that when I started giving him the morphine, his mind was going to slip away. But I knew that you know he was suffering, and it had to be done and I was the best person to do it. So I leaned into it. And uh, I think that's what you got to do. You got to lean into what you define yourself as. And if you do that, I think you're living a good life.
0: Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: I have a website, markmclaughlinmd.com. There are a number of videos of my talks and YouTubes. I also have a YouTube channel that you can pick up from the website and uh, MD Instagram. And obviously the book I think is a great start to be introduced to cognitive dominance. And I'm planning a second book and that will sort of dovetail off of this concept into some of the other concepts related which is just in the preliminary works now. So mainly the website would be the best way and you can get Cognitive Dominance on Amazon.
0: All right. Well, Dr. Mark McLaughlin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Brett. It's my honor.
0: My guest today was Dr. Mark McLaughlin. He's the author of the book Cognitive Dominance. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, markmclaughlinmd.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Cognitive Dominance where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. (laughs) Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we. Get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not listen to one podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot,